If male homosexuality was the love that dared not speak its name in early 20th century Britain, what was lesbianism? We will discuss that and more today on Footnoting History. Welcome to this special edition podcast of Footnoting History. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Lucy. And today we'll be mining our favorite novels from the golden age of mystery writing to learn about how queer women were viewed in Britain from the 1920s to the early 50s. Full disclosure, Lucy and I are both fans of detective fiction produced in this period. Woo. For the sake of time, we're focusing on writers from Britain or the Commonwealth, a.k.a. the British Empire. So namely, Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, Nahio Marsh, and Josephine Tay. Yes, but this does not mean that we don't enjoy American detective fiction, but it had very different tropes and paths, so we're not considering that here. Um, consider how different Sam Spade is from Hercule Poirot, for instance. Exactly, and to be completely honest, the idea for this podcast originated from mine and Lucy's deep love for Peter Whimsey, uh, so here's a squee! I told Lucy I would mention him and squee in the first few minutes. So again, squee, Peter Whimsey. All right, now we can start. <laughs> now that Liz has had that out of her system, uh, we can get down to the topic of our show, which is queer women in detective fiction. Uh, especially in the interwar years, there were single women aplenty in the British Isles, surplus women and spinsters, governesses and maids. Uh, Christie and Sayers, though, both show women who deliberately flout gender conventions, queer women, mannish women, as different from the, the single women who abandoned after a generation of men were uh, decimated uh, in the Great War. I think we should take a moment here to explain what we mean by the term queer, as we're using it here. Uh, we're not suggesting that all single women in detective fiction are queer. Miss Catherine Clemson. Uh, for example, who heads up Lord Peter Whimsey's uh, <laughs> Employment Bureau for uh, Superfluous Women, uh, prizes highly the expanded social independence opened to women since the days of her late Victorian childhood. But Liz and I were interested in the portrayals of women who are decidedly queer, a word that we're using since terms used to define sexual identity are A, of comparatively recent currency, and B, constantly in flux. Right. I think it's very important that we um, explain that we're using the term queer as a sort of, not even a lesbian catch-all, but a lesbian plus. Yeah. Meaning the idea that it's a spectrum of sexuality is so great that we need to be as comprehensive as we could. So queer, um, especially today, and I realize this is being somewhat anachronistic, but queer yeah. today also embraces the transgender community, the transvestite community. So we want to make sure that we are including all the different aspects on this spectrum that were that were present in these British mystery novels of the early to mid 20th century. So in the pages of these novels, as Lucy said, we find women who are described as mannish, but also women who have come across as distinctly feminine in style and yet are described as having deep connections to other women. Yes. I suppose at this point we should explain why we decided to focus on queer women in these novels, because obviously there is so much that one can pull out of this. I mean, there's a right. whole upstairs, downstairs life. There's oh educated women. There's just so many factors of social identity that Let's can be taken from podcast. these novels. Oh, it's totally another podcast. Yeah. All right, Lucy and I already have another podcast <laughs> for some time in 2014. Yes. Come back and visit us then. So the idea actually came because we were a few drinks in at a conference uh, when we were discussing how homosexuality is seen by some today as a distinctly modern issue. And yet, based on these books that we grew up reading and have long loved, and some of them are nearly 100 years old, 
It was apparent to us, at least, that queer people were very much present and understood to be so in past societies. Uh, specifically in this case, Britain um, in the interwar period, yes. really. Yeah. We've noted that most of the characters in these novels who are able to openly live their lives are from upper-class families. But this doesn't make us feel that it means that that's how they lived was limited to people with means, but just that people with means had the ability to live as they wanted. Respectability was more malleable at that level. Yeah. If one really wanted to examine queer culture in early 20th century Britain, um, some great literary evidence would be from the 1928 novel, uh, The Well of Loneliness and its reception. Uh, if I were going to talk about Mrs. Dalloway, let alone Orlando, I would want yet mm. another podcast episode. Also an excellent movie. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it so much. Yes. yes. Orlando, oh. they did a really great job with that. Yes. So if you have time, I would deeply yeah. suggest going to see Orlando. There's also anyway. a good Mrs. Dalloway with Vanessa Redgrave, but yes, we shouldn't digress yes. too much. Yes. Digression. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, this book, The Well of Loneliness, brought out into the open a deep fear that lesbianism was or would be current uh, in the interwar years with a lot of single women without men, um, and that women would find uh, lesbianism attractive, but that it was unnatural and would bring about the downfall of society. Um, and they really did use this language in newspapers uh, and even in some of the court proceedings. Uh, the novel could also use a podcast on its own to discuss how Stephen, uh, the protagonist, has her skills, emotions, and relationships described. Lucy and I now have three podcasts coming. Yes. <laughs> For those of you keeping count at home. Uh, but we wanted to examine why this novel really set society on its ears while Christie's and Sayers' characters seem to engage in very similar behavior patterns to Stephen and essentially get away with it. Right. And even though we are talking um, British mystery novels, there are, as Lucy mentioned, Orlando received, um, did not receive the same reception that mm -hmm. The Well of Loneliness no. does. So I yeah. think it definitely depends on, um, it seems to depend on, I don't know. Well... Radcliffe Hall, Radcliffe Hall in The Well of Loneliness makes it explicit that she right. is making a plea for a revolution in social attitudes. She says that lesbianism is totally natural, um, that God has created some people this way. She does frame it in a, in a divine order sort of thing. She says, for goodness right. sake, give us permission to live this way. She says, you are creating misery. So it is mm -hmm. an indictment of society and a plea for change um, in a direct way that, say, Orlando or Mrs. Dalloway even is is not. You know, there isn't this coda where Virginia Woolf says, and also you're all terrible people, you know? <laughs> right, right. right. So... No, you're, yeah, I actually, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and even if you turn to our queens of crime, so Sayers, Christie, and Marsh were known as the queens of crime, Mm. Um, they use tidbits about sexuality as descriptors and to explain action, but not necessarily to be the action. Right. Um, a year before The Well of Loneliness, Dorothy L. Sayers publishes her Unnatural Death, in which we have two generations of queer women. Yes. Um, it may be important to note that Sayers herself was straight and thus also writing from a position of privilege, although she was unconventional in the expression of her sexuality. Um, she yes. rode motorcycles, which was unusual for anyone at the time. Mm -hmm. She had uh, an illegitimate child at age 30, mm -hmm. um, three years before the publishing of that novel, having decided that while her relationship with the child's father was great for sex, that they would be terrible together in the long term. Um, and she married another man a year before the novel came out. Right. And um, I always like to think that she created Harriet Vane, um, 
I guess you could call Harriet her female protagonist in the yes. Peter Whimsy Squee series, um, <laughs> mainly to insert herself in the series because Harriet Vane is a mystery crime novelist. And I mean, I, w- I wouldn't blame her for wanting to hang out in the fictional world of Peter Whimsy. No, no. I mean, I love Harriet Vane as an independent character, but no one blames Dorothy L. Sayers for being in love with Lord Peter because, yeah, really. Yeah. But to return to the relationships at the center of unnatural death, um, <laughs> sorry, uh, Sayers gives us Mary Whitaker and her friend who conform to several stereotypes of lesbianism. Uh, one is very feminine, even described as fluffy, um, <laughs> and the other, Mary, uh, is not, although to be fair, neither is described as flouting general conventions of female dress, and they both help at church jumble sales and do a lot right. of, you know, integrated mm-hmm. community things. Right, and Mary Whitaker is a nurse. Yes, she is. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And Mary Whitaker is also much the stronger personality. Yes. Um, so the relationship is represented as one of obsessive hero worship on the one side and somewhat offhand emotional exploitation on the other. Um, so this uneven and decidedly unhealthy emotional relationship, and I think it is the emotional relationship and not the sexual relationship, which Sayers is representing as unhealthy, um, mm-hmm. is balanced by that of one from a generation back. Um, we have Mary's aunt, Clara Whitaker, who is spoken of with affectionate respect uh, by an old groomsman as both beautiful and spirited, but a determined resistor of marriage with no sexual interest in men whatsoever. Um, and the groom, moreover, observes that the Lord makes a few of them that way to suit his own purposes, uh, which I find fascinating. Yes. Uh, yeah. And she lives together with Miss Agatha Dawson. And while there are hints of family opposition, they stick to it and live together and run a business for years. For decades. I decades. Mean, yeah. Yes. No, the permanent long... life partnership. Yeah. yeah. And Sayers continues that theme of, as, as Lucy just said, so the Lord makes a few of them that way to suit his own purposes with the inclusion of two of Harriet Vane's best friends in Bloomsbury, who helped her through her ordeals when she's accused of murdering her ex-lover. I love them. Yes. <laughs> Harriet's friends live together, and they're possibly, probably, quote, living together. Yes. Um, one of them constantly dresses in trousers and a waistcoat as an endearingly radical feminist. Yes. And while the groom can be seen in kind of a stand-in for the common man's view on queer women, Lord Peter Whimsey, I like to think, is the intelligentsia speaker, mm-hmm. And he he earns their respect by accepting their lifestyle without question. Yes, absolutely. Um, And if we were in doubt that Sayers found queerness not not only to exist, but also not to represent the downfall of humanity, uh, we have her 1935 novel, Masterpiece, I would like to say, Gaudy Night. Greatest book ever. Yes. In which we have a mostly female cast of characters, which is so fantastic. Um, Sadly rare. As we get Mm -hmm. to see so many different women's personalities and the question of female sexuality and essential femininity is really at the fore. Uh, Spoiler alert for those who wish to read this brilliant novel without knowing how the mystery is solved. Okay. All right, so we said it. Spoiler Spoiler. alert. Okay. Don't listen to the next 30 seconds. When obscene drawings and letters are sent to the fellows, the faculty of an Oxford women's college, Harriet Vane, an alumna, is driven to see the ivory tower as Lady Athaliah's tower, the home of frustration, perversion, and madness. This is a reverence to the novel and play Frolic Wind, in which Lady Athaliah 
is a breeches-wearing woman with a collection of lesbian pornography. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, but having raised this, this specter in readers' minds, Sayers eventually reveals the source of the fierce and twisted resentment uh, to be a rabid fanaticism for the limiting of women's roles to a strictly domestic sphere as being more natural than the pursuit of university education or even of owning a motorcycle shop. Yes, the fatal character flaw for Sayers isn't a twisted sexual desire, but a belief that women are inferior to men mm -hmm. and those that try to rise to the level of equality or, worse, superiority should be punished. Yeah. While Sayers uses sexuality as plot devices, though, Agatha Christie, considered the premier queen of crime, relies on it more for description than to advance the plot. Right. Christie, um, also uh, incidentally straight, so writing right, from just, privilege. We keep including um, what the author's own um, backgrounds are, just to show that it's not, um, I mean, Virginia Woolf, lesbian, writing about lesbianism, not seen as that odd. But Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sawyers basically were just saying that it's there. Right. It's in their realm of experience, so it's not odd to include it for them. Yeah. Which I think is really great in a way, you know, this, mm -hmm. yes. Which is obviously why we chose this topic. Right, right. Okay, so um, she tends not to explore the sexuality of her characters very much unless it's relevant. I mean, there are some offhand caricatures, admittedly, but that's true of any character mm -hmm. type, whether it's the county squire or, you know, the post office lady or whatever. Right. Um, and the fact that there are some single women of various ages who read as very feminine and some who don't may be read, certainly, as nothing more or less than an accurate representation of personalities without reference to either gender identity or sexual preference. But still, at least for me, reading mm -hmm. and rereading these things obsessively, um, the speculation tugs often, especially when we are tantalized by such apparitions as the devoted couple of Hinch and Murgatroyd in Murder is Announced, which was published in 1950. Um, especially because I think a big theme of that novel is like, concealed identities. Yes. Yeah. Oh. And Hinch and Murgatroyd, um, one of whom is described as mannish, uh, live together in an easy middle-aged tolerance that I think masks the depth and passion of their mutual attachment. Yeah, I was going to mention that Christy makes their attachment extremely plain, yes. but I'm even more worried about adding spoilers, mm. because it is really hard to discuss mystery novels and characterizations when you're trying your damnedest <laughs> not to give away the whole show. Yes. <laughs> but Christy then may give us, as seekers of literary queer women, less material than Sayers, but she does provide a glimpse at gender expression, which is perhaps more interesting, because it's being considered less than Sayers. Mm -hmm. Especially in her earlier novels from the 20s and 30s, she seems to be chronicling a time when masculinity and femininity were much less set than they would become in later decades of the 20th century. Absolutely. Of course, it is important to note that Christie presents a very upstairs view of the world where, as we've mentioned, it might be more acceptable to be eccentric. But again, these eccentricities, if that's what they were, were not outside the realm of many people's experiences. And I'm, I'm just going to throw in now, I suppose that anyone living at the same time as Vita Sackville West... Mm -hmm. A member of the aristocracy who left her husband and young sons to live with her lover and dressed as a male while doing so, yeah. and at one point had an affair with Virginia Woolf, would have been familiar with such attitudes. And here I throw in my suggestion, don't just read Orlando, but also go and get a copy of Portrait of a Marriage about Vita Sackville West and her husband Harold Nicholson. Mm -hmm. um, spoiler alert, but one that is revealed early on, they get back together. Um, although both continue to have same-sex affairs until their deaths. Mm. 
Okay, back on topic. Oh, yeah. Sorry. The very fact that Christy, no, no, it's me this time. <laughs> the very fact that Christy has no prurient need to fix the sexuality of her dandies or spinsters is in its own way refreshing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, fascinating to observe. I've found also that Niall Marsh, uh, an actress turned writer from New Zealand uh, who was never married, uh, shows us something similar. I still remember my shock when a costume designer in her novel Night at the Vulcan, whom I had thought I, I recognized as a rather flamboyant gay man, turned out to be secretly in love with a woman. Yes, I believe I said out loud at this point, you have to be kidding. Yes, it's Because true. he was, he seemed so stereotypical gay. I mean, Jacko, in many ways. I mean, totally sweet, avuncular character, just also, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I'll also add that Marsh is not very kind to the few more out gay men she does have. Um, but there is perhaps something compassionate, or that at least can be read uh, compassionately, in the representation of one actor, Percy, who inhabits the stereotype of flamboyance so vigorously that there is almost nothing else left of his personality. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really sad. Um, the, the decision that he has made to live openly in that way has seriously constrained his options of self-expression in other ways. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, but counterbalancing that, Marsh does have one of my favorite queer women, um, Caddy Bostock, uh, a no-nonsense artist with a vigorous social conscience uh, and a kind heart. Uh, she's great. She has such a sense of humor. Yes. Uh, and she's best friends with Agatha Troy, um, who needs her sense of humor. <laughs> um, and I find this friendship... Also, yes. Yes. I mean, uh, and I find this friendship great as representing a really warm, loving, non-sexualized relationship for Caddy with another woman, thus sort of debunking the, the oversexed or constantly rapacious uh, stereotype of lesbian women. Caddy doesn't talk about her love life much with Troy, but she does have a number of short-term relationships. Uh, it's hinted that she's too dedicated to her work to give much energy to a long-term one, I think. And she's she's cheerfully independent. She kind of teases Troy about being, you know, in love with her husband. You know, mm-hmm. oh, you're so cute. Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually, that's also a theme that comes up in uh, Sayers' Scotty Night, the mm-hmm. idea that some women can find fulfillment in work and not need relationships. Yes. And they kind of use relationships <laughs> for other reasons. But ultimately, as um, mm. one one main figure in Gaudy Night explains, she broke up with her fiancé when she realized that she was constantly hurting him by not really paying attention enough. Yes. Whereas if he were an article she was working on, <laughs> she would have been fully focused on what was happening. Yeah, I identify with her a bit too much, really. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I sometimes worry about that. Yeah. But, yes. Mm. Um, so, so far, all of our mystery authors are considered or believed to have been straight, um, even though they're including these various figures. Um, But we thought we'd include Josephine Tay, who is most famous for her book, Daughter of Time, in which she turns the story of the villainous Richard III on its head. So great. A recent novelist, Nicole Upson, has written some mystery novels in which Tay is the protagonist and a lesbian, which, um, because it's a modern novel, it does get, I won't say completely explicit, but it does definitely drive home the idea that she is a lesbian in various relationships with different women. But the evidence for this assumption seems to be lacking Mm. and exists in little more than rumors. But you could say then that she's the only author that we're covering who there are at least whispers about her sexuality. That's fascinating to me. And parenthetically, why have I not read these novels? Because that sounds fascinating. But Um, yes, Nicole Upson. I've read a few of them. They're okay. They're good. What is uh, interesting about that, I find, is that compared to our other authors, I find Tay to be, on balance, more conservative uh, mm-hmm. than say, Sayers 
or Niall Marsh. In Miss Pym Disposes, for instance, we have a, a friendship between late adolescent girls, which follows depressingly uh, the tropes of tragic lesbians in literature with sacrifice and self-sacrifice galore. I mean, oh my gosh. Martyrdom. Yes, it's adolescence at its finest. Yeah. <laughs> and by finest, I mean it's worse. Oh, yeah. It's... Yes. <laughs> yes. Meanwhile, Tay is at pains to establish the heterosexuality of Lucy Pym, the 30-something protagonist, and brings male-female romance and its importance, I think, rather artificially into a story which is primarily about a girl's school. Yes, it's a mystery at a girl's school or an event at a girl's school, and yet... And yet... We keep yes. having marriage and, yeah, it's curious. Various dates and meeting people. Yeah, things get incorporated in, and it does. It seems pushed in yeah. rather than a natural evolution. It does. It's it's strange to me. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, but at the heart of To Love and Be Wise, uh, which is one of my favorites of her novels, um, spoiler alert, again, <laughs> so for those of you. Close your ears. Yeah, um, is the figure of Lee or Leslie Searle who is a woman who spends a good part of her life passing as a man. Um, and the effects of this on a, a quiet provincial English household form the heart of the mystery. Um, but the, the male beauty of Leslie Cyril is often referred to not just as disquieting, but off uh, or wrong or unnatural. Uh, personally, I love Lee Cyril and would like to be friends with her, um, but she doesn't get a very favorable case made for her by the author. Uh, she's a professional woman. Uh, it's never made clear whether Lee slash Leslie identifies as male or female. For the sake of simplicity, I'm using the female pronouns since Leslie herself um, describes her behavior very much in terms of passing to avoid sexual harassment and to pursue professional opportunities, uh, which she does state very flatly would not be open to her as mm -hmm. a woman. But it's also made very clear that Leslie was attracted to women and that she continued dressing as a man because she enjoyed it. Right. And this brings us back to the whole issue of what does queer mean? Yeah. Um, with the idea of transvestite, transgender, lesbian, all of them. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. how. I have no idea how to label Leslie. She's just fascinating. She's, she's just beyond labels. Yes. Um, one wonders if Tay was overcompensating for her proclivities. But short of finding some secret journal, we're not going to know. Oh, well. Suffice to say, I suppose that while Tay finds the behavior of Leslie to be unnatural, the idea of a manly woman was common enough that it's included in her work. At final count, that leaves us with Sayers and Christie, who, who include queer women in a rather matter-of-fact, oh, yes, they exist way, and Marsh and Tay, who find themselves more judgmental. I'm going to point out that Sayers and Christie were safely married while they presented such women, whereas Marsh and Tay were single. And we're perhaps more worried that if they presented queer women too favorably, people would believe they were. Which in itself is sort of depressing negative evidence, if true, that there was this sort of nervousness. Oh, no, anything but that. Um, exactly. Yeah. So where does this leave us uh, in the final assessment? We have, in our beloved detective novels, uh, lots of queer women, apparently. But their sexuality is often obscured. In the early 21st century, we have the issue of being solely defined by our sexuality, whereas here we have that one facet of personhood repeatedly obscured. But I'm inclined to take the evidence of these detective stories as, on balance, favorable. Okay, so now you all need to go out, read all of these books in case you haven't, and let us know what you think. Yes, please do. We love talking about them, as you can tell, and we'll happily continue to do so uh, on any of our social media outlets. This has been Footnoting History, 
If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's podcast. You can also like us on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Join us next week when we'll be talking about stories from the reformations of 16th century Europe. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!